So yeah, we've uh, got an emergency. Um, it's interesting to me earlier where some of the folk on the panels were saying this is really, really important to us, uh, the sustainability question. Um, and I'm interested in understanding whether that's actually true right now. So we've got um, a little bit of audience interaction, I hope. Uh, the next slide. Flight interview. Hello? Yeah, so we've got a poll. So the first question is really, um, in your organisation, in your relationships with your partners, are you seeing sustainability as a higher priority, the same priority or a lower priority than before the pandemic? So um, do I need to click on to the uh, poll page? Ah, there we go. So 50-50 so far. That's two of you voted. So. <laughs> Come on, it's an emergency. Mm. All right, so we've, we're settling broadly for more than pre-pandemic, uh, which is interesting because that might be telling us something about the changing state of where we are. We've, I think we might come on to some of this as we discuss it, but uh, in our own data, we saw, we can uh, close that poll, move on to the next slide, please. Yeah, so this was quite scary. We had 70% of the C-suite not acting on sustainability, either well-meaning, but not actually managing to achieve much or waiting for others or actively greenwashing. Less than a third of CEOs and board members were supporting their organisation's sustainability, and less than half of senior decision makers were collaborating internally and barely any collaborating beyond their own walls. And when you look at this data, that bears that out. Even internally, only 44% uh, of people are finding collaboration opportunities within their own organisation, let alone when you go beyond into their own ecosystem. So that's a challenge, bearing in mind the scale of the emergency we're facing, right? So my first question, and I'm, first of all, I'd like to get the panel to introduce themselves because we've got some stellar names. Can we go from the far end, please? Can we start with um, Adrian? Nice to meet you all. My name is Adrian Bowles. I'm the head of operations at SourceMap, and SourceMap is based here in New York. We're a supply chain mapping software to enable 100% traceable and transparent supply chains back to the raw material. It's nice to meet you all. Um, Susan Keniston, Global Head of Sustainability for Wipro, um, a global tech services firm, uh, uh, and really appreciate being here and uh, really appreciate SourceMap as well. So huge shout out to SourceMap. <laughs> Kelly Fisher, I'm the head of corporate sustainability for HSBC, which is a global bank. Mike Sacklis, and I'm vice president of sales for Peer Storage, and we make high-performance, sustainable data storage, data, ma uh, data management platforms. Nandini Tare, I am an associate practice lead for digital engineering, manufacturing, and sustainability at HFS. Uh, hey everybody, I'm Kat T and I lead environmental sustainability at Google. I'm primarily focused on Google TV at this time. So, and I, I should warn everyone, I did brief the folks beforehand, uh, feel free to just lay into this at any point. I'm not necessarily going to go along the line asking the same question, but the first question to all of you mm -hmm. is how are we going to 
do better with this collaboration problem, both internally and externally? What, what's going to move the dial there? Mm. Who wants to go first? Sure, I'm happy to <laughs> jump in. Um, I, I think, you know, in, in most existing organizations, what you really need is a champion who can, um, in so many words, lead without authority, influence, inspire, and get everybody sort of lined, aligned on the thinking that needs to change in order to think about your products, your services in a more sustainable fashion. Um, so if you don't, if you want to achieve sustainability and you don't know where to start, find yourself a champion that can help rally the troops internally. I think to add to that, making sure that it's really tied to the core business um, objectives of a company, making sure that it's tied to the direct kind of outputs that every team and individual um, is accountable to within their roles. And within that, if we think about supply chains in particular, one of the great momentum shifts that we're seeing is that sustainability is no longer being kind of relegated to an individual or a team within a company, sometimes even kind of nested in a marketing division of a company. This is an initiative that's being kind of aligned to procurement, um, compliance, and, and other teams to kind of see how this can be a collaborative and cross-functional priority for the business because it's really around seeing sustainability as a risk, risk managing risk exposure and risk mitigation within a business. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add, I think, because you asked both about external and internal, on the external side, those drivers are profoundly powerful. At HSBC, it was when our clients started asking about sustainability and our relationship managers didn't always have the answer. Boy, did I see change happen very quickly when a client asked about it, right? Same thing with companies that are driven by investors or consumers. You don't want to wait until a key external stakeholder asks and not be ready with an answer about what you can offer them or what you can do to collaborate with them on sustainability or what you're doing. Internally, I completely agree with Kathy. The internal champion is key. It's best if it's your CEO. Um, we have... CEOs that paid it some more lip service, but our current CEO, Noel Quinn, is absolutely bought in. He has embedded it in HSBC strategy, and he said things publicly to the media like he wants HSBC to be the first bank to prove that an ESG balance sheet is a profitable balance sheet, which may not be moving to some of my colleagues who have been combating climate change, but for a banker, that's actually pretty moving and pretty emotional statement that he wants to prove that this is profitable. So as soon as he started saying things like that, everything fell into line. It's now in people's, it's tied to people's compensation. Mm -hmm. Every one of our bankers, as my America CEO says, who speaks client, speaks climate. Um, I used to go to a lot of client meetings. I'm not needed as much anymore because they understand how to talk to our clients about sustainable finance and sustainability. Yeah, I agree. The CEO definitely sets the tone, obviously, in all kinds of ways, but especially with sustainability in order to get everybody to start thinking about it seriously. And, you know, when I say um, an internal champion, it, it could be the CEO. Obviously, you need the CEO to, to, to have buy-in. And, but this champion is also somebody who will you know, start to get the ducks lined up. But at the end of the day, you really need 
everybody thinking about sustainability in their day-to-day -day and how they operate just in the same way that they think about you know, risk management or, or really anything else about the product or service that you have. In fact, um, when I say champion, I don't mean like bring somebody, some expert from external world to start talking to everybody about sustainability. You need the people within your organizations to get up to speed and get trained on sustainability so that they, you know, they understand your business, they understand the model, and they understand the, you know, how to work with each other, um, but also now bring in that layer of sustainability thinking. Um, and sustainability is not that complicated, um, when you know your business, it's not that hard to get your people trained to then start thinking about this layer of sustainability as well. Yeah, absolutely yeah. agree with you. I think um, there has to be literacy, um, sustainability literacy across the organization as well as there has to be an alignment. And I think somewhere creating the right KPIs and the right metrics would also help in, um, you know, ensuring that, you know, we've got more awareness around sustainability and also tackle the challenges that come up with this. Susan, I know we were talking earlier about the impact of data on all of this mm -hmm. and also the kind of the risk for organisations that don't get this right in their beliefs around sustainability right now in terms of recruiting people and retaining people. It's becoming a, an employment choice. So you said you've seen quite an increase in demand in recent times. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, and it, and it ties up a little bit with kind of how collaboration is changing a little bit. So maybe I can connect some dots there as well. Um, collaboration and then the increase in demand. Collaboration is really interesting. Historically, collaboration has been a lot through industry coalitions. And so the apparel coalition, for example, or the supply chain coalition, or the automobile coalition, that drove a lot of collaboration and standards that we have today. Um, and really very impressive for what they've done for the industry whole um, across the board. But what you're seeing now is a shift to smaller forms in collaboration. Um, given the sense of urgency that's out there. And I think it's really, really encouraging. So you're seeing different stakeholders, different entities coming together to drive new ways around sustainability. We're seeing it, for example, with our alliance partners and our clients and, and other institutions around very, very focused areas and problem solving. And I really think it's unlocking some really new ways of doing things faster. And so that's what's behind the collaboration changes today is that need for speed of change. Um, and connected to that, underlying a lot of that is the data and getting line of sight to data. And what's showing up there, it's, a little, it's really interesting. So um, some of it is, you know, of course, the data for disclosure and the reporting and the requirements that are coming in terms of the global standards, the regional standards, the local standards, and that's fantastic. So people are collaborating on those data standards and getting the data back. Um, but what is really interesting that's kind of bringing it back to the internal stakeholders is it's showing up more to your point in terms of financial reporting. That's changing the internal stakeholders quite a bit. <laughs> and so it's now really going into less to the uh, CSO suite, but more of the CFO suite in terms of accountability of the data, the data rigor, and now the stakeholder being the CFO. So that's completely changed the engagement model in a lot of companies right now in terms of the momentum, who needs the training, 
who needs the data? How do we, how do we um, advance this very quickly? So all these dots are really quite connected in terms of kind of the momentum, the collaboration, and then the driver around the external disclosure, and then now into your financial parts and the rigor around that. It's just, it's really all coming together and, and honestly changing in the last six to nine months at a speed that we haven't seen. I wonder if I could, sorry, Mike, um, I was just going to ask Adrian, um, because SourceMap yeah. may not be familiar to everyone in the room. It might be worth explaining what you guys do or have been doing for the decade now. Yep, over a decade. So SourceMap was founded out of research that our CEO was doing for his PhD at the MIT Media Lab. And was kind of simply founded out of this question of where do things come from? And so what we do is we work across industries with starting with apparel, food companies, biotech, life sciences, um, variety of industries to help them understand their supply chain. So it simply starts with the tier one suppliers that they're directly sourcing from, asking them to report the suppliers that they're buying um, goods and materials to provide to, to these end customers, which are some of the world's largest brands. If you wear clothes and eat food, you probably are associated with one of the companies that SourceMap works with. Um, and so we are basically helping them to map the network of suppliers upstream in their supply chains to uncover risks um, in their supply chain, which today is becoming more to the forefront and aligned with the overall business objectives of many of these lar world's largest companies um, through, the regu through regulations and compliance levers. So here in the United States and in the European Union, there are regulations that we've already seen come into effect last year in 2022, more coming into effect this year and, and in the years to come, which are really kind of and holding companies accountable to the ways in which goods are produced um, and making them accountable to the social and environmental impacts of those goods. Um, so in particular, last year in June 2022, there was a law passed here in the United States, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. That, that law is directly impacting apparel companies, food companies, um, and, and variety of other industries from batteries and manufacturing. Effectively, what that law states is if you're importing goods into the United States um, and those goods are passing through or originated from the Xinjiang province in northern China, um, that those goods can be held at the port and the, the responsibility is on the company to be able to prove that they have a system in place to monitor how those goods were produced. They can provide documentation on the chain of custody of those goods which means that they basically know all of the suppliers and people who touched that product, where it came from. If, if a company can't provide that information, those goods are basically held at port. And these can become multi-million dollar challenges or issues for companies where those goods can effectively be lost. So this is now having a very direct impact on business continuity and the overall operation of a business. And so that's really, uh, to Susan's point, kind of waking companies up where this is now something that the chief procurement officers CEOs, CFOs of companies are directly kind of paying attention to and making decisions. So sustainability is not no longer kind of sitting in a corner. They're at the table and making core decisions about the business. Thanks. So I, I interrupted you, Mike. Um, there was a point you wanted to make about data, was it? I thought that was a really good point. I, th I think where we're getting to is that sustainability used to be a or conversation. <laughs> do I want to grow or do I want to be sustainable? Where we need to go and where it should be heading to, and I think all the panelists are agreeing, this is an and conversation. How do we grow our business? How do we service our clients? 
and how do we be sustainable? And I think until the sea level understands that this is not a trade-off, it's an additive benefit, you now get into a culture change, you get into a behavior change. And that's what everyone's talking about is, <clears throat> what I take away is, our company was born out of sustainability. We made decisions to say, how can we change the way that companies are housing and uh, using their data, and how can we do it at a tenth of the power and a tenth of the cost, and all of those byproducts. And so that's a cultural change. When you talk to clients, you don't have to say, look, do you have a sustainability angle because we want to satisfy these requirements? Sustainability needs to go up the prioritization stack, and it needs to be an and versus an or. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're there yet. I think it's happening. Um, and I think there's so much goodness going on, but it's up to us to make it that and conversation. Mm -hmm. It's almost becoming, it's contractual requirement. And when it becomes a contractual requirement, people then have to respond to it. But I know some of you have been working this way before uh, anyone started putting it into the procurement deals. Um, Kathy, would you talk us through a little bit about how you build sustainability into every step of the production process when, when you're working with Google. Yeah, um, you know, just to build on that, um, on Mike's comments a little bit, you know, yes, it needs to be, sustainability thinking needs to be incorporated early on if you want to avoid any cost changes down the road. It gets, it, obviously with any change management, it gets painful if you don't think about it up front. And, you know, in the same way that you think about performance and quality, Sustainability should be right there. This is about efficiency. This is about, um, you know, if, if, you, if you have an energy consuming product, it's about energy efficiency. These are not new thoughts. It's just now it's like up here P0 versus like, oh, it's a social, you know, endeavor. It's, that's not the case anymore. That's old thinking. Um, you know, with, with, with Google TV, um, it is a change management moment for us and we're really proud of it. We had to come in and look at things like power consumption. Um, you know, what makes my job easier, honestly, is having regulations that come out of the EU that I can point to and say, sorry, not me, it's the regulation, we have to do it. <laughs> um, but it shouldn't have to come to that, you know what I mean? And that's something we were able to do with the CTA, the Consumer Technology Association, which is the parent company of CES, is come together for the US and Canada and create voluntary agreements across the industry. Because, you know, the situation in the, in the US with the states is that if you let the states and the advocates in the different states enact policies, you're going to get all different requirements every state, and then, you, then you're really screwed, because then you, you try to come up with solutions that meet all the different requirements, and then you've got to keep up with the different requirements of different states. But if we get a voluntary agreement across the industry, now we've got, you know, first of all, the, and the advocates are happy, now we've got one set of uh, requirements that we're trying to meet across the board. And so we did that with uh, the TV Energy Efficiency Volunteer Agreement this past year, and that was announced at CES um, by U.S. Secretary of Energy, Granholm. Um, those are the kinds of, um, those are the kinds of um, endeavors that I think uh, really make the maximum impact to get everybody lined up all together. So it's not like we're competing across the industry to be sustainable, uh, you know, because we, we're, none of us are going to survive if one other company isn't going to be sustainable and is going to deplete the resources of, the, of the, the planet, we can't survive either. We have to be aligned on this. That's the reality of, of, of the situation. But um, so, so, you know, the 
for, for Google TV as an operating um, system and, and, and launcher platform, uh, the parts that we really control are the energy efficiency, right? The power consumption levels of, of the OS. And so we, we were able to tackle that pretty quickly um, internally through our engineering efforts. The, the tougher parts are, you know, supply chain management. Obviously, you've got to go all the way back and you have to think about um, how deep you know, of a story you want to be able to tell about your product. When we're looking at packaging, for instance, um, you know, first of all, you've got the package that the consumer picks up at the retail center, right? We want that to be plastic-free and fully curbside recyclable. If anything, out of convenience, you know, with, with um, certain counties in like California, you can't just plop the box on your curbside. You have to take it apart. It has to fit in a certain bin. You can't put the start, you know, it's a whole thing. But if it was all fully plastic-free and curbside recyclable, that makes it easy for the consumer. But if you dig a little deeper, you'll realize that the manufacturer of like the remote controls sends the packaging with plastic wrap of its own to the end, you know, packaging unit. It just, and then that becomes a whole pile of plastic on its own. The consumer may never see it, but it exists and it counts as part of your sort of your supply chain output. So anyway, you, there, there's a lot of different, you know, portions and I don't want to take over the entire session to, to go through it. But as you can imagine, um, there's a lot of ground to cover. Um, but what I am seeing is the eagerness of organizations to cover it. Why? because consumers are starting to really demand it. And that consumer interest and uh, visibility into sustainability of your products, the, the, the interest in it is increasing exponentially every day. So that consumer question is interesting. So I'll just throw this uh, along the panel. Any, anyone wants to pick this up, it's fine. I'm just thinking, well, yeah, people might say in a survey that they care, um, but how do you see it actually impacting decision-making on a daily basis or on the consumer side? Are they actually coming in and saying, I reject what you're doing because I don't think it's sustainable? Okay. Well, I mean, the best researcher that I've seen on this is a woman named Randy Kronthal-Sacco at NYU Stern. NYU Stern has a Center for Sustainable Business. I highly recommend you read her work because she doesn't talk to a 20-year-old who's about to walk in H&M and say, do you care about sustainability? Of course, they're going to say yes and then go in and buy a sweatshirt and throw it out she actually looks at purchase, purchase, actual purchases. And she saw that any product marked sustainable was the single greatest increase starting the pandemic. Even though people couldn't get toilet paper, right? My dad accidentally ordered those giant rolls of toilet paper that you see in like, you know, like city field because he couldn't get toilet paper. You'd think people were just would have been desperate for any product and not have cared. That's not what the actual consumer data showed. I also saw a really interesting report the other day that said the single greatest wage increase in the US, and this is good news. I know you don't hear good news on a climate panel very often. The single greatest wage increase in the US right now is the lowest income wage. That population also is the population that has seen the greatest increase in caring about buying sustainability products. So that means their income is also now funneling into sustainability products. So the data is there on consumers. Yeah, because that's always been the challenge. Um... If you haven't got enough money, can you afford the sustainability issue? And I think that's kind of, a, we can come to that question if you like, but it's, it's in the round, you know. Right now, we're facing several emergencies. Um, one of them is sustainability. How do you get that to be prioritised in the organisation amongst all the other leaders that are going on? How have you achieved that? I mean, Susan, maybe tell us about that, how that conversation is happening with some of your clients. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and so maybe connecting it to the last conversation around consumer as well. Um, so a lot of the leading sustainability companies today, they feel like they've got a pretty good line of sight in terms of what they're trying to do to get after their improvement activities. They know what they're, they need to do. They're starting to see some of the results of that. But to make the progress that they need to make for the goals and the targets that they're setting, what they're needing to do is tap into the consumer experience. And so to, to me, that is a, a big deal that that's showing up, that they're going there now and taking on some of the responsibility for helping to helping the consumers in, to educate them in terms of, you know, if you want to reduce the footprint, then maybe we need to have a, a, a soap that's powder so that we can package it differently. And so um, it's nudging them in the direction. So that's one thing that, that a lot of our clients are starting to do is now go to the consumer experience end of it, which is really interesting. Um, in terms of um, kind of bringing in the change at the business level and addressing it, a couple of things that we're really seeing is absolutely addressing the compliance requirements that are showing up in the global and regions. Um, of course, CSRD in Europe and TCFD in the US and then local standards as well. So that is a big driver for the transparency requirements and transparency for consumers, employees. Employees are choosing companies based 40% today based on the position of climate change. So there's a couple of stakeholders that that data is very important for. But what's also really interesting that's showing up right now is the sense of urgency. So there's a sense of urgency around while you're waiting to see the results of how you're doing. And if you're on track for your improvement activities. And a lot of companies are, 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 are saying, and this is kind of a quote from one of the forums that we're in is, you know, this is possible, and these are leading sustainability companies, but it's very, 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 very difficult to, because this is new muscle for them to measure their emissions footprint, to do all this. So while that is happening and while they're learning how they're doing and putting those improvement activities throughout their value chain at the same time, and then doing disclosures, they know that they have to grow the business as well. Right? So they have to reduce the impact and they have to grow the business. And so what you're seeing is now this kind of practical bringing the information of how you're doing to drive impact down and to grow business into the leadership levels of the company. So for much more faster feedback loops of how are you doing? What does it look like to grow a business responsibly? So that is one of the biggest things that we're seeing, and it goes into educating and training the leadership team about how to work differently in that decision-making. So it is, it is bringing them into that decision-making of becoming a responsible business, um, that it is no longer sustainability as a side thing. It is part of your capital, natural and social capital and what you do to manage the company. And so there's a whole lot of kind of uh, interesting uh, new decision-making. The data is good enough. They know how to work data. They have the instincts of how to run the business. And they're building the muscles and the learning of how to make decisions together to become a responsible business. And that's at the functional level. That's at the C-suite level. And so it's, it's really exciting because it is the sense of kind of urgency that's driving, want to get that feedback loop for their, how they're doing, as well as uh, support the disclosure requirements. So kind of a parallel path of urgency. Yeah, I guess the, the kind of message I'm getting is that 
we're doing so much better in making the argument. We're doing so much better in coming up with ways in which these things should be measured or how we should assess the data. I, I guess my question is, so what's happening? Um, we're still seeing really bad results globally for sustainability on a daily basis. I, I think only today, I think the BBC was reporting we're hitting that 1.5 degree uh, target that no one wanted to hit this year. Uh, so given the massive influence that industry can have, why is it not, why is it taking so long or why is what we're doing apparently not working? David, I'll, I'll jump in with sustainability is hard. That's why we're up here. If it was easy to deploy change behavior, culture, all those things, it would have been done and we would have waved the flag of success. It's hard. So HSBC is a wonderful example that you gave. It's got to be digestible. We've got to do this in parts. People walk out and say, you know what? I don't have that type of support in my company to go deploy a sustainable data center, a sustainable stack infrastructure. I don't have that. We've got to be able to give roadmap and bite-sized chunks to be able to go deploy and at least get going on the path. It's such a daunting, um, it's such a daunting task that we create um, officers around sustainability. We create departments around sustainability. We create all of this because it's not easy. If it was easy, it would just be deployed. I think more than anything, we can define the problem, which we all understand extremely well. You know, Europe's a good example around, you know, the increased cost of power and it's driving change. But now it's like at the, at the, at the grassroots level, how can we actually digest and make change in bite-sized pieces? And I don't think those roadmaps are out there across this entire ecosystem stack. I think Susan talked about Wepro and what they're doing. I think that is, um, that is absolutely where they're heading. Um, I think that more than anything, clients are asking for us, where can we start? How do we start? What should we focus on? And that's, that's important from us to be able to educate and give that roadmap, at least start people on that journey. And until it becomes a top three priority, unfortunately, it's going to be a or conversation. Mm -hmm. I also uh, want to add that I think that we're evolving from a mindset that sustainability is like a luxury good or that only luxury products are also sustainable or handmade or something you know very special about it. And we have got to get out of that mindset. You know, we, we even faced it internally where it was like, oh, great, we'll make the more sustainable product. It'll be high end and we'll market up. It's like, no, that, that, that's by definition not the sustainable solution. The sustainable solution is the one that everyone can afford and the planet can afford all together. Um, you know, maybe initially changing like the specs of the product will change the cost. But first of all, that's because we have yet to tap into the economies of scale that we've been used to with things like plastic parts. Um, but also because we have to think a little more creatively. Like this is, this is something's shifting here in the way that we're looking at the product. And we have to come up with more creative solutions in order to make sure that the price is compatible um, with the product and our, our consumers, but that it is also compatible with the resources available to us um, on, the, on the planet itself. And so, um, you know, I, I, I really hate when I hear <laughs> that, that like, oh, it's sustainable. It's like a high-end version of the thing that we already have. It, that, that's not sustainability. 
And I think to add to that, I think oftentimes sustainability is deflected as being on the, the responsibility of the consumer rather than the responsibility of the business, mm -hmm. which I think we've all kind of been speaking to a little bit. And I think there, there should, the onus shouldn't be on the consumer to question whether or not the good that they're buying was made with forced labor, or if that good was made by cutting down a forest to, to bring that to, their mar to the market. Um, those shouldn't be questions that consumers have to concern themselves with. They should be able to make decisions about their goods based on, is this the thing that I want to buy and is it the best thing for me? Um, of course, those aspects come into it, but it should be the responsibility of the business that's producing that good to be able to mitigate those risks within their business because it's good for their business. And to Kati's point earlier, it's driving better margins, better efficiency, um, and overall better products that enable the sustainability, which is really en enabling making sure that we're not depleting resources, that these businesses can be around for a long time. So I think that's really the shift that we also need to start. To well, and, and since we're talking about costs, I feel like I have to step in here as the bank in the room. Actually, your bank can help with that, your bank partners, because most of our clients say they don't have the resources to fund it themselves. There are a couple exceptions. Cargill, for example, has a great program where they fund the farms, their farmers themselves to move to regen agriculture. That's great. But that's where our banks like HSBC step in. We have a $1 trillion commitment, and we want to help your companies finance the change you want to see. So you don't have to make that argument that you have to find the resources internally. I came from automotive before this, and I saw how hard our chief environmental officer argued to get the resources to recycle the water in our paint facilities or go to zero landfill at our, our 10 plants in the U.S., that's where the bank steps in, and particularly on supply chains, which tends to be 70 to 90% of all your company's footprint, we're the trade bank. So if you, finance can seem really complicated when you pair it with sustainability, it doesn't have to be. So we're doing things like sustainable supply chain finance, where you just tell us how you're rating your supply chains, both on the human rights and the environmental, we'll pay the suppliers that are proving they're doing well better. We'll pay them quicker, or we'll pay them a better rate. So now we're using finance to try to drive that change you want to see. So I don't want companies to feel like they have to do it all themselves, because that's, I think, sometimes where I see, to your point about or, that's where I see the argument die, is the CEOs want to see, that the C-suites want to seem like they're supportive until they see a price tag on it, and then it stops, right? I think the problem's multifold. Um, one is sustainability is still new. I have to say this because, you know, coming from a digital engineering manufacturing background, um, for manufacturers to have an uptake in the latest and greatest technologies, it took an evolution. It wasn't an immediate, you know, talking about cloud, they were not like, okay, here, I'm going to invest in cloud. But there is going to be an evolution in sustainability but there are some key things that need to happen. One is, you know, I keep going back to organizational alignment is because while the CEO has a vision and goals, does the procurement understand those visions? Right now, what we understand, what we know is um, at about every contract has about 20% weightage when it comes to sustainability, but, uh, you know, when actual procurement happens, they're talking about cost, they're talking about efficiency, are they talking about, um, you know, this is my sustainability percentage weightage and these are the goals that the suppliers have to meet. 
So that, that becomes key. So we need to start internally when we look at an organization to align that and then create those roadmaps to resolve those um, issues. So that's going to be a cultural change. And I'm going back to, you know, what we started with our conversation with. It's, it's culturally, we need to change about uh, how we look at sustainability, how we think about sustainability, how we invest in ourselves about sustainability. We cannot put the onus of sustainability at a consumer level. Okay, so mm -hmm. I think we've gone through quite a lot of the areas we wanted to explore. Um, and we did promise we'd kind of offer some direct things that people could do. And I think um, a lot of what you've been suggesting are things people can go and do and focus on. But I wonder if you could just give all of these folks here today something, just one thing, that they go back and they go, right, I'm going to do this when I get back to the office and it's going to make a difference. So if I start from the end, please. Map your supply chain. You you need to understand all of the all of the suppliers that are in your network. Um, you're not just dependent, and there isn't just risk with the direct suppliers that you're buying from. You'll go. <laughs> <laughs> just one thing. I was going to say travel less, <laughs> um, but I think that's a really hard one in a lot of businesses, and that is a big one for a lot of businesses as well. I think the one thing, and it's been talked about a little bit today, is, you know, training is fundamental. Everybody needs training on this right now. And um, whether it's the C-suite, the functional leaders, um, it's individual employees, they want it, they want it to be part of their jobs. Like we talked about, 40% of them want this to be part of the employee experience. And making it approachable and safe for people to learn this because it's just a new way of doing business. Um, and so I would say training is one of the biggest things you could do that really will, will take off. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think if you think that climate change isn't part of your job, no matter what you do, you're wrong. Al Gore, I saw him speak last fall at the New York Climate Week at the New York Times and he said, what we're going to see right now, and I think this is a bit what you were getting at, is as if you combined the industrial revolution and the way that changed the world with the speed of the digital revolution, where we now all have a computer in our pockets, right? If you combine those two together, that's what we're gonna see in climate. Um, so if you think it doesn't relate to your job, you're wrong. And to Susan's point, I mean, educate yourselves. You don't, there's so much information out there that you don't need to look very far. No matter what your role is, you will find information on how it applies to your jobs. And happy to, as a follow-up for this, list some of the things that we've invested in that are non-proprietary out there, like NYU Stern's return on sustainability investment tool, things like that that would help you get started in your organizations. But get started, trust me, I don't care what you do. And I play this as a game with people at HSBC. I say, give me a job and try to find a job that climate change doesn't apply to it. And they've not stumped me yet. I will try to not repeat everything everyone else said. Um, uh, I look at it, and I'm going to go down the education path, but we all as company um, employees have key vendors that help us succeed in our jobs. Understand what the vision is and understand what can be executed today. So if you buy into a vision with no executables, you might be let down in two or three years. You need to understand what you can deliver today to start on that journey and then you need to buy into a vision. And if companies that you have that are key vendors to you 
don't have that vision, strategy, and an executable arm of that today, that's a worry because sustainability is not a new topic that has been brought to the forefront in 2023. And so if you don't understand that, I'm going to go down the education path, get close to those vendors and make sure you do. Mm. Well said. I think um, you should go back and start looking at sustainability and creating those roadmaps, breaking those and ensuring it's executable, right? Because that's more important. You can always create a roadmap, but if you cannot execute it, it's, it's of no use. So work through that. And as an individual, I think there is still a lot of things that you could do, um, you know, try to walk, <laughs> cycle, and um, yeah, travel less is, is also something that you should look at. If there's one thing that I think everybody here should do is when you go back to your organization today, you're gonna open up a, a, a spreadsheet and you're gonna do some rough back of the napkin calculations of the emissions of your product or service that you provide. It doesn't have to be perfect, but basically know thy impact <laughs> and take responsibility for it. So whatever it takes, like just if you wanna focus on the power consumption it takes to produce your product or your service or whatever it is that you're providing, Put it in a spreadsheet, do some rough numbers, you Google get some help on how to create those calculations of carbon emissions. I, I guarantee you're, you're gonna be floored when you see exactly what it takes to produce what you have, and it's gonna move you. And you're gonna share that out with other leads in your organization, have them look at those numbers and say, this is our real world contribution to climate change. What can we do? Here are the inputs. Um, how can we tweak those inputs and start to move that needle down? Know thy impact. So I think we've had some really interesting uh, evidence of things we should actually do. And I just wonder, we've got, I think, a little bit of time for some questions. No, <laughs> uh, so I'd love to... Uh, that was the fastest hand up I've ever seen. <laughs> Anything you've got that might get a bit more clarity on the action you should do be a really interesting question for the panel. And I've got loads of questions coming up. So the man with the mic. Yeah, just, no, uh, thank you for this. I just, when, when we're talking about data, I, I just want to... Uh, so I've been doing a lot of work with, uh, with government U.S. housing mm -hmm. and had done work with uh, state agencies and all. And, and nobody, to your point, wants to... Uh, infect or destroy or make their customers ill. You know, I think this is just like common like business practice. And I had met somebody who was a valedictorian of their school and they're going to go to Cornell. I asked them what they're going to major in. And I'm going to get to the data point, but they said they're going to major in individual carbon footprint. And this is about two years ago. And I like blew my mind that that was actually a thing and that the smartest person of about 5,000 people is going to go major in it. But to put the onus from a data standpoint is to say, can I take those, uh, those attributes, right? So for ESG, so for environment, for social, for governance, whatever those are, can I take them down to an individual level? Mm -hmm. So for U.S. housing, it took the, I said, I could go and take, and actually there's some Google things here, CoreLogic and uh, product stuff there. I said, let's go down and score the, uh, for each individual looking for a house, let's match the individual and their family composition to the type of property, the location, the environmental impact over uh, the property ability to uh, be a target for, uh, for solar or for reduced energy consumption. Mm -hmm. That way I could path all the way, the dollars all the way to that HSBC, mm -hmm. 
is it eligible then for sovereign fund investment, right? Because we're taking all the way up to that one. But by taking it down to the individual, I also saw that all of the members of the company can see what the impact is on that persona of your customer. Yeah. And that's how you gain a lot of momentum. You don't want to put somebody in a house that's going to flood. And actually, uh, President Biden used that reference without mm -hmm. realizing it was from two weeks before at an ethics session where we talked about Chase putting somebody in a house that they should have been able to realize was going to flood. It was the lowest cost housing in the town, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but at an environmental level, it was also the most likely to be flooded, which is why it was inexpensive. And so, we got back to where the F, I can first, take those elements all down and if we're all data people, all the data is available and it's one of those, from a design standpoint, you should have known better. Mm -hmm. That's really what we're talking about. This is like long-term impact. I can mm -hmm. take that all the way down to the customer, to the community, to the neighborhood, to this larger environment. So from a data standpoint, start capturing and being like a, an advocate for keeping that data too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So have any of you seen that as a challenge that you've solved so far? Well, I, I love what you said and you're absolutely right. I think um, all of us would agree that data for good, it's not data for data's sake, right? It's data for what, are you, what case are you making? My team, I always use a shorthand with them, issue and the tissue. And they know that means we got to hit our executives with the data and then make them cry a little bit, right? Because they want to be hit in the head and the heart. I love what you're saying. I also think you're trying to touch on data to fuel a just or an inclusive transition, which is what we're now starting to really focus on at HSBC. So we're doing things like working with this great organization called um, New York City Energy Efficiency Corps that go, you know them. Yeah, they're going into a, at New York City buildings that are the lowest, lowest income and starting there with energy retrofits, right? So that's what a, it shouldn't be a, just a transition. It should be a just transition. Yeah, and part of that, so looking at these funds, I worked with the Energy Commission in Connecticut as well, yeah. and they get a dollar out of every bill paid. But we've got a few other questions we need to move on to. <laughs> Hi. Uh, so we are hearing so much about generative AI and the impact is having or going to have on our lives. Uh, how about uh, the impact on sustainability? Because uh, large language models are going to be using large amounts of computational resources even higher, much higher than what they're currently using. And uh, powerful data centers, the energy consumption is going to go through the roof. And uh, Katie, you mentioned about calculating about our own uh, carbon footprint, but this is going to massively increase the carbon footprint. Do you think it's going to take us back few steps in our quest for sustainability? Uh, how to handle that? Yeah, I mean, it's the same conversation we were having about Bitcoin, right? Like, how is that, how is that sustainable? Um, I could just say, you know, for, for Google, Google has a goal of being uh, carbon free by 2030. That includes obviously the data center operations. Um, I think the focus there on, on that conversation um, in terms of processing and sustainability is, is the data centers and ensuring that they're all using uh, renewable energy sources in order to power. Um, yeah. Mike, did you have any thoughts on that? I think, yeah. I think it's a great point. Um, when you start thinking about AI, you start thinking about engines, and you start thinking about processing power, Skatsy's talking about. Well, it, it's an absolute consideration. And so I will tell you, as AI gets readily implemented in all walks of life, whether it's farming, whether it's banking, whether it's retail, if you don't have the foundation set right now, you're going to have a bigger problem when AI becomes part of your mainstream business mm -hmm. because it's gonna uh, it's gonna make your sores and the cuts that you have even bigger mm -hmm. and, and that's that's factual like if you look at data centers today 
they're two to three percent of the overall power being used in the world are coming out of data centers. If we don't get to a renewable energy, if we need not get more proficient at this, it's going to be a lot worse in the coming years. Mm -hmm. So I'm really sorry, folks, but that is all the time we have for questions. But <laughs> I'm sure some of the panel will be around during yeah. the lunch break. So if you'd like to go and have a chat with mm -hmm. them, feel free. So please thank this glorious panel, Cathy, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Nandini, Mike, Kelly, Susan, and Adrian. Thank you very much indeed.